This program is paid for by Your Radio Doctor, LLC. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of Your Radio Doctor and their guests and do not reflect the opinions of WPHT or Odyssey. Your Radio Doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, products, physicians, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on Your Radio Doctor. Always consult your own physician. Today's program has been pre-recorded. Millions of Americans are losing their medical assistance or Medicaid coverage. If this affects you, Independence Blue Cross can help. You may be eligible to enroll in a health plan for as little as $0 a month. With Independence Blue Cross, you get the largest provider network in the area, including most Keystone First doctors and hospitals. We also offer free 24-7 telemedicine, coverage for hospital stays and prescriptions. See if you qualify for $0 health insurance and enroll today. Call Independence Blue Cross at 1-844-464-2583 or visit ibx.com slash stay covered. Talk Radio 1210, WPHT, WPHT, HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia. From the Cherry Hill Volvo Studios, where relationships matter. Always live on the free Odyssey app. It's time for the Delaware Valley's first radio doctor. On call every Saturday afternoon at 5. This is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. Listen, seven months or ten months is an absolutely exceptional, exceptionally short time frame to produce this vaccine. Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Good evening and welcome to your radio doctor. I'm your host, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Record-breaking temperatures and hot sun. Now more than ever, it's important to wear sunscreen. And it's important to emphasize that people of all skin colors are at risk for skin cancer. The problem? Because skin cancers are less common in people of color and harder to notice, they're often found at a later stage when the survival rate is lower. Joining us today is the nationally recognized dermatologist, Dr. Andrew Alexis, professor of clinical dermatology from Weill Cornell School of Medicine in New York City, the former chair of the Department of Dermatology at Mount Sinai in New York, the director of the first ever Skin of Color Center for 15 years, numerous leadership positions in professional organizations, including president of the New York Dermatologic Society, president of the New York Academy of Medicine Derm Section, also multiple leadership roles in the Skin of Color Society, the American Academy of Dermatology, the American Derm Association, and the Cicatricial Alopecia Research Foundation. Say that three times quickly. Uh, He's a frequent guest on major TV networks, He writes for the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Vogue, Allure, Essence, and he's been a top doc, no surprise. But his favorite appearance is here on Your Radio Doctor. Welcome, Andrew. Oh, thank you so much. And I appreciate the the warm introduction, Marianne. Oh, thank you. So skin cancers, let's start there because that obviously is the most frightening um, challenge for people with, uh, you know, people of color. And I know as dermatologists, you divide cases into non-melanoma skin cancers and melanoma. Let's start with maybe basal cells. Yeah, what you've said is exactly right. Broadly speaking, we can look at skin cancers as being melanoma, which is uh, the most serious of the major skin cancers, and non-melanoma. Under non-melanoma, we have basal cell carcinoma, and squamous cell carcinoma. Those are the the two main non-melanoma skin cancers that are very common. 
the thing is, uh, when it comes to how common these skin cancers are, it actually varies according to different populations. Uh, and we do see racial, ethnic, and skin pigmentation differences with respect to the frequency and clinical presentation or appearance of these um, skin cancers. Uh, so specifically, let's take basal cell carcinoma, for example. When it presents in someone with lightly pigmented skin, it's usually like something you'll see on, on the internet as an image, as an example of a pink, pearly bump that uh, might have a scab uh, in the center. Uh, now, in someone with very richly pigmented skin, that very same condition can look um, a little pigmented, brown. It could be darker brown and not pink. And because of this, this can sometimes contribute to delays in the diagnosis. It might be a little less noticeable uh, to both the patient and even healthcare providers. And I think what's a little bit sneaky about basal cells, if I remember from med school days, I don't know that it's changed that much. They grow slowly and they grow inwardly, they grow deeply, right? They don't spread. So you might have a little bump on your skin and say, oh, that's been there for a year, right? Aren't people of all colors sometimes fooled by that character character trait of basal cells? Yes, they do tend to grow, to grow uh, rather slowly. Although, of course, there's uh, there are always exceptions and there can be some aggressive forms that grow more quickly. But to your point, when they grow, when basal cell carcinoma specifically grow, they grow by uh, invading the surrounding skin and, and the uh, deeper layers of the skin, but don't uh, spread from the skin to the lymph nodes in a distant site, so they do not metastasize mm -hmm. basal cell carcinomas. Mm -hmm. So the number one enemy for all of us is sun exposure. And as the world gets hotter, I wonder if that makes the risk higher. It doesn't necessarily, right? Sun is sun. Well, uh, you're absolutely right that sun, UV radiation from the sun is the number one risk factor uh, for basal cell carcinomas across the board of any anyone of any background with any skin complexion. It's sun, UV from the sun that's the risk factor for this common uh, skin cancer type basal cell carcinoma. Um, and certainly with more intense sun exposure, either through shifts in our our behaviors, like uh, tendency to spend uh, more time uh, deliberately um, exposing the skin to the sun to tan or using artificial uh, UV sources like tanning booths, etc. Uh, and perhaps uh, changes uh, in the environment, uh, such as the ozone layer depletion, may all contribute to higher risk. And you mentioned something very interesting the other day. I haven't heard this expression for a long time, that a tanning booth tan is a safe tan. We've, we've talked on other shows that UVA uh, rays used to be attributed, or, or it would be responsible for aging, whereas UVB is a little bit nastier, more likely to cause skin cancer. But A can cause skin cancers too, and that's what the tanning booths are, yes? Yes, um, UVA uh, can be very damaging to the skin and is associated with a higher risk of skin cancers, including melanoma, the most serious of the skin cancers. Mm. And many tanning um, booths uh, market themselves as being um, less likely to cause burning, and that's because they use UVA as opposed to UVB. Um, and uh, so whereas UVB are, rays are more associated with burning, UVA is more associated with tanning, but and at the same time, are, uh, can be associated with a higher risk of uh, 
types of damage to the skin and and uh, associated uh, skin cancers down the road. I think it's important too, especially for people who work outside, who have to be outside. If you're on medications, there are certain medicines that make your skin more photosensitive. Like if you're on an antibiotic, especially younger people, if they're on tetracyclines for acne, am I right? And certain uh, medicines like uh, ibuprofen and its relatives, the non-steroidal uh, people that take for headache or pain meds. So it's important for people to be careful and ask their doctors and review their med lists. Yeah, what you're what you're alluding to is that yes, there are some medications, many medications that can be associated with sensitivity to the sun. So while on this medicine, you might be more likely to develop a sunburn. And tetracyclines like doxycycline and other members of that family are is just one example of something that can make you more sensitive to a sunburn. But out of the medicines that can be associated with photo uh, sensitivity or sun-induced uh, reactions. I think the one to really highlight, uh, based on the the uh, current uh, literature, medical literature, is uh, hydrochlorothiazide or thiazide um, uh, medications have been associated with a higher risk of non-melanoma skin cancers. So cumulative and dosing of of hydrochlorothiazide. Um, can be associated with a higher risk of skin cancer. And, sure, and I'm sure most of our listeners will realize that's a water pill that many people take for whatever reason, for swelling in their legs or for blood pressure control. Now, squamous cell, we always, I always used to think was more innocent, but but that can be pretty nasty too. Let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so squamous cell carcinoma, which is the second most common type of skin cancer in the United States, but it turns out in patients with skin of color or richly pigmented skin, it tends to be uh, the most common of the three skin cancers. Now, squamous cell carcinoma can present in many different ways, but one typical way is having a, a scaly red or brown, brownish, depending on your skin type, um, uh, area on, uh, on a sun-exposed area or even a non-sun-exposed area, but an area that, that uh, a spot that just doesn't heal and it might start to enlarge and get more raised and rough and scaly, bleed easily. It might even have some symptoms of, of pain or tenderness to the touch. And that would, all of this would warrant uh, a evaluation by a dermatologist to, to, to determine the diagnosis. As you say, what's especially sneaky is that if they're not appearing on sun-exposed areas, then people have to notice their lower legs or even in the uh, the region around the rectum, the anus or the genital region, which may be related to HPV uh, infection. Yes. Yes. To some of the higher risk strains of HPV virus, yes, that can be associated with with. Uh, uh, squamous cell carcinomas. And uh, if it were to occur on the lip, I guess, is that related to smoking, do you think, or more from the sun or just bad luck? So the lower lip is an area that over one's lifetime can get quite a bit of cumulative UV exposure. And so um, the lip uh, is an area where we can see squamous cell carcinomas and they are UV uh, associated. But your question mm -hmm. about smoking, yes, smoking on top of the UV, smoking is another risk factor that one can get, oh. certainly get uh, squamous cell carcinomas in that area. So many reasons. But UV itself can, can, can do it. Mm -hmm. So many reasons not to smoke. 
And then melanoma, I mean, we could do a whole show just on that, but we talk about, when we talk about cancers uh, as physicians, we, we refer to the five-year survival rate, and that's the one metric that's uniform that we say, okay, at five years, how long does somebody with early XYZ cancer, what percentage of people are still with us? And it, it's obviously going to be a smaller number as the cancer is more advanced, but melanoma is... Yeah, the marker is a 10-year survival rate, yes? Uh, we, we have data that looks at five-year survival rates for melanoma. And yes, there, there, there are also 10-year survival rate data as well. Mm -hmm. And one of the things to, that I'd like to point out, if you don't mind, is that unfortunately we see racial ethnic disparities in those survival rates for melanoma. And you might have even uh, seen some news stories just in the past uh, week or so uh, with another study uh, showing um, lower um, five-year survival for melanoma among uh, black men with melanoma. And previous studies have also shown lower five-year survival rates for um, black or African-American uh, patients mm -hmm. with melanoma in general. And so the survival rate is lower for several reasons that we alluded to a bit earlier. First of all, if you have dark skin, it's going to be... It, a melanoma, which is brown or black most of the time, I know they can be uh, amelanotic or not have the dark color. They're hidden by if all the skin around it is dark, it doesn't stand out. There's no red flag there for the patient. Plus, let's talk about, we have about 30 seconds left in this segment. We'll continue. But the melanomas, it's so unfair of Mother Nature. They occur in really uncommon places in people with uh, skin of color, under their nails and where else that are unusual. Yeah. So if we ask the question, well, where is the most common location on the body where you would find a melanoma in an individual with skin of color? It turns out it's the lower extremity and specifically the sole of the foot is the number one location. Other locations include the nail, the nail bed, whether it's your toenails or your fingernails, uh, as well as mucous membranes. So the in, inside the the, the mouth or the, the mucous membranes of the eyes and elsewhere. And inside the nose, who would think to examine the inside of somebody's nose? When somebody comes for a, a head-to-toe derm exam each year, how do you keep up with I, I know the dentist, my dentist is great about examining my mouth for when I go for routine exams. Let's take a little break and we'll be back with Dr. Andrew Alexis and talk more about melanomas. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. If you have a question for the medical mailbag, just send a note to doctor at yourradiodoctor.net. At Independence Blue Cross, we believe in giving you the tools you need to pursue your healthiest life. From premiums as low as $0 per month to health discounts and cash rewards, it pays to have coverage with Independence. With the strongest network of doctors and hospitals in the region and free 24-7 virtual doctor visits, you can feel confident that quality care is always within reach. Learn more about your coverage options at ibx.com. When Recovery Centers of America at Devon opened its campuses on the main line and in South Jersey, they offered a new approach, local addiction treatment led by an expert caring team of professionals. RCA has since helped thousands and leads the way in innovative programs and exceptional inpatient and outpatient care, all in a beautiful setting that allows for healing and recovery. RCA answers the phone and admits patients 24-7, 365, including the holidays. All admitted patients and staff are routinely tested for COVID-19. Call now at 1-888-RECOVERY. That's 1-888-RECOVERY. 
Welcome back to your radio doctor. We're here with Dr. Andrew Alexis, professor of clinical dermatology from Weill Cornell. Andrew, we were uh, focusing on melanomas and they're just uh, a really frightening cancer in anyone, but people of color uh, have the misfortune because the melanomas more often camouflage, that's kind of obvious, but they also show up in atypical areas. Let's review that again. Yeah, so when it comes to melanomas and we look at the diverse patient population uh, uh, across the board, it's a bit nuanced because while melanomas occur less frequently in populations with richly pigmented skin, when they do occur, they tend to arise in locations that are less sun exposed or not sun exposed, such as the sole of the foot. And when they are diagnosed, there's a tendency for them to be diagnosed at a later stage, meaning that the prognosis is also um, often worse in that scenario. Now, one story I like to tell, especially to my patients uh, that wonder why we would even examine the feet during a, a skin exam, it's often a surprise to patients that why, why would I ask them to take off their shoes and socks during a skin exam? They often leave them on because they don't want to get cold. Um, and uh, they're often surprised to learn that melanomas can occur uh, in a place that doesn't it re receive the sun, like the sole of the foot. And then I'll sometimes mention the example of Bob Marley, um, who actually died as a result of a melanoma on his, uh, on his toe, uh, which ultimately metastasized, unfortunately. So, so that oh. uh, sort of sends the message that uh, anyone, including uh, famous legends uh, like uh, Bob Marley, could, uh, uh, if without the right care, without uh, diagnosing things early, uh, could end up with a, with a serious melanoma. And so those unusual locations, as you say, on the sole of the foot, who would think? But I guess if you fall asleep on the beach and you're on your belly, your feet are exposed. We don't think of that. So that's a very good point. So people of color are more at risk to have melanomas appear on the pot in the palms of the hands, or we say aquil, or the fingertips, toe tips. Yeah, it's a bit of a nuanced answer in that sun exposed areas uh, or sun induced melanomas. Let's put it that way: sun induced melanomas are are far less frequent in individuals with richly pigmented skin, but melanomas on the palms, the soles, the nails they occur at a frequency that's actually comparable to the general population, but proportionally, wow. the melanomas that one sees in an individual with richly pigmented skin is more likely to be found on those sites, palms, soles, nails, and mucous membranes. So reasons why melanomas <clears throat> diagnosed at a later stage, unusual locations, but also there's less suspicion. When you read anything in the literature, it says people that are fair, blue and green eyes and like the emphasis is not put on people of color. So even doctors sometimes overlook early melanoma or melanoma at an early stage. And then the patients don't think it's not a, as uh, at the top of their list either. And so um, it's so important that you, and I want to talk about the society of the, the um, society of color, but um, the lower, uh, perceived risk of cancer is very important too. And the other unusual place we were chatting earlier, aside from under the skin, palms and soles, is inside the eye. So 
I guess depending on your age, if people don't wear glasses, they may not start to visit the ophthalmologist every year, but that ophthalmologic exam is very important because people of color are more likely or not more likely, but that's a place where they're at higher risk, right? Inside the eye itself that you wouldn't see it on the surface. Any mucous membrane. So really it's about being vigilant, about really knowing your own body, knowing your, your baseline, doing your own skin survey so you can be in a position to detect something that's new or changing, especially uh, a dark brown or black uh, uh, lesion that is uh, irregular in shape or, or changing color or size. Unfortunately, not 100% of melanomas are pigmented, but I'm just giving general guidelines. Sure. And, and if we, they bleed or itch, exactly, right? Exactly. That's right. Those, those can certainly be warning signs. Mm-hmm. So in general, when we talk about people with skin of color, common conditions of the hair, skin, and nails can vary in appearance from light-skinned people in general. Let's talk about some of the other conditions that if a person um, of color looks up on the internet a picture of psoriasis or uh, eczema, they're going to look at something and say, well, that's pink or it's a certain type of rash. And theirs might appear in a different way. Let's talk about that. Yeah, so there are a whole range of common skin and hair and um, uh, even nail conditions that can affect anyone of any background. But when they occur in an individual with more richly pigmented skin, there might be some variations in how it looks visually, how it presents. And that could throw um, some folks off, especially when one goes to the usual source of the, the internet. Um, to search for images of something that they 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 might have, and because of the dearth of of examples across the range of darker skin tones, um, often patients are, are are left feeling like, hmm, I can't figure out what I have um, because there's nothing that seems to match what what it looks like in my skin, and even when the physician or healthcare provider in, provides a diagnosis to the patient, and then the patient wants to go home and read up on it, that also can lead to a little bit of confusion when the descriptions and the pictures don't quite look like what's on um, on their skin. So examples of conditions of that that would have these variations, there are so many, but uh, eczema, which we call atopic dermatitis, psoriasis, uh, and seborrheic dermatitis, which is a common inflammatory condition with scaling and itching of the scalp and, and potential for dry patches on the face. And I guess the um, appearance might be, they might look purplish or dark brown or black. I was looking at photographs the other day. Yeah. So some of the differences include color, as you said. So in the context of lightly pigmented skin, uh, of a, a, um, a plaque or patch of eczema might look bright red or pink, but in the context of someone with very richly pigmented skin, that redness might look more violet or purple or red-brown, and so very different um, than what's typically depicted in, in, in common images. So let's say a patient uh, with richly pigmented skin has psoriasis and it's treated successfully. Is there a different impact after the therapy sometimes? That's such a great question, Marianne, in that when it comes to inflammatory conditions like psoriasis mm. or eczema or many, many others, 
in addition to the actual inflammatory skin disorder, once it gets better, it tends to leave behind some pigmentation changes, which a patient might perceive to be marks or scars. They're not truly scars, thankfully, because they're not permanent, but they can last for weeks, months, even years sometimes uh, in areas where the psoriasis or the eczema or other inflammatory condition was. And I know that you've done so much research, and I'd love to hear, I know currently you're the chair of the Scientific Committee of the Skin of Color Society, which is fantastic. And when, and that started in about 2004, the Skin of Color Society? Yes, yes. We're coming on to our 20th year anniversary. Yes. Oh, that's exciting. Mm-hmm. And what is your baby? What is your, I mean, I'm sure you do research and clinical studies in lots of different areas. Is there one uh, area that you like to focus? Yeah. So my, my interests in dermatology have been very broad from medical inflammatory conditions like psoriasis and atopic dermatitis, but also um, the use of lasers and devices for the purposes of, of uh, more um, aesthetic procedures. Although I find that I use devices to address the sequelae of common in inflammatory or medical skin conditions. So I might use a laser or chemical peels in the context of a patient who had acne, but now has long-lasting hyperpigmented macules. And and one oh. of my areas of interest is how to use lasers and devices and procedures in general safely in skin of color because it's nuanced. Uh, not all devices are appropriate for all skin types. So we actually are very of selective course. of what uh, devices and techniques and settings are used for a specific skin complexion based on safety. Because I, what mm -hmm. comes to mind too is vitiligo. If a a light-skinned person has vitiligo. It can be pretty subtle, but if a darker person, a uh, woman at, uh, works at our hospital, beautiful woman, and she's pretty dark and her vitiligo stands out and she's so awesome. She just acts like it's not there. I mean, what else can she do? But um, how do you go about approaching a person with vitiligo, especially if they're, they're uh, rich colored skin. Yeah, so vitiligo can affect anyone of any background and as as you said Marianne, when it affects someone with skin of color, the contrast between the vitiligo skin where there's loss of pigment and the normal pigment is more stark and it in turn can be far more disfiguring in many patients with skin of color. And on top of that, there can be cultural factors depending on one's cultural context. There might be some more stigmatization of having white patches from vitiligo. The good news is we have new treatments for vitiligo. Well, one new FDA approved treatment that just got approved in, in 2022. And it's anticipated that there'll be more uh, breakthroughs to come based on the uh, pipeline of uh, research mm -hmm. right now. So we have about a minute left in this segment. We, we can continue when we return, but the Skin of Color Society, tell us a little about that. Yeah, so the Skin of Color Society is a professional society that um, has as, as its mission to advance knowledge and understanding and overall care for dermatologic conditions that um, are prevalent among patients with skin of color. So just something as specific as 
let's say a person has, a woman has uh, extra hair on her face and she might want to get it lasered off. Is that woman at risk for any danger from the laser causing inflammation that would, you know, be kind of counterproductive? Yeah. So if, if a patient with skin of color or, or richly pigmented skin requires a laser for hair removal, a specific wavelength is, is preferred called 1064 NDAG. So in other words, not just any old laser, uh, a very specific laser for, um, for, um, for uh, deeply pigmented skin is recommended for safety reasons. So it can be done safely, but you have to pick the right laser with the appropriate parameters and, and uh, pre and post uh, uh, steps. And that's the beauty of a society like Skin of Color, because you're sharing that information and really helping people as a, as a, a big group. Let's take a little break and we'll be back with Dr. Andrew Alexis from Wild Cornell. And now for your real champion, I call this segment, Love Thy Neighbor. To really do her story justice, it would take an entire show to explain all the programs which Amy Stoner has overseen in her 35 years at the Archdiocese of Philadelphia. Amy is the director of the Community-Based Housing and Homeless Division of Catholic Social Services. Translated, she's the heart and soul of Catholic Social Services. Amy was in the first graduating class of social workers from Widener University, and her very first job was at a Head Start Center in Chester. She then heard of an opportunity to work with disadvantaged pregnant moms. Moved by the love for her own one-year-old daughter, Amy answered the call to work with birth moms and dads who were considering parenting or adoption. As of late, for nine consecutive years, Catholic Social Services of the Archdiocese of Philadelphia has been named as Pennsylvania's Service Provider of the Year for helping the highest number of pregnant women throughout the state. The award is granted by Real Alternatives, a nonprofit charitable organization in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania that administers pregnancy and parenting support services. In addition, Catholic Social Services has a family service center in Frankfurt called the Senecal at the Padre Pio Center, and that has been named Site of the Year for 11 straight years for its work with pregnant and parenting mothers. For over 25 years, Catholic Social Services has provided meaningful, life-affirming pregnancy and parenting support services. Through its Beautiful Beginnings program, each year about 5,000 pregnant women receive free and confidential support services prenatal and parenting education, access to baby food, diapers, maternity clothing, baby clothing and furniture, assistance in finding appropriate medical services, and referrals for other services for women and newborns. Under Amy's leadership, women receive support to carry to pregnancy, and there are also services that help moms who consider adoption. On a regular basis, the team holds baby showers in parishes and various locations where people bring diapers and other essentials for moms to care for their new babies. Well, this year, Catholic Social Services is planning the biggest baby shower ever. On September 9, there will be a mass and a walk, then a baby shower in the parking lot at 17th and Vine, and up to 500 moms are expected to join those who donate gifts to celebrate life with music, food, vendors, and workshops. Moms will receive new baby clothes and baby items. Amy said, the shower brings people together, lending a sense of community and a chance for the faithful to encounter the moms they're helping. 
Donors aren't just giving gifts. They're sharing an experience and gaining a better understanding of these women in need. Amy sees each of her clients as a fellow human being and has stayed close to many of the women she's met in their time of need. She said it's a powerful experience. One woman invited Amy to her high school graduation and then her wedding, and recently that same woman just met the son she offered up for adoption, and she called Amy to share that moment of joy with her. Countless other programs for preschool children, after school, pregnancy and parenting, family services, seven housing programs and shelters. They depend heavily on money raised by Catholic charities and the goodwill of the people. Take Back the Month is a donation drive to support women who put other needs of their families, like food and diapers, causing inadequate access to feminine hygiene products for themselves. One in five women report being unable to afford these hygiene products and suffer ill effects to their health and dignity each month. Monthly dinners at St. John's Hospice. A bishop joins the men, along with women and children from housing programs, for a catered dinner with music. Women of Hope has Queen for a Day luncheons for those experiencing homelessness and in temporary housing, with food dominated from parishes and entertainment. The Recovery Walk brings both clients and anyone who wants to join to walk and pray for those in addiction now. The annual Archbishop's Christmas Party gathers thousands of toys for children throughout the region who might otherwise think Santa forgot them. Boot Up Philly, an event includes those giving and receiving to come together for lunch donated by Chick-fil-A with music and up to a thousand people will receive boots, coats, socks, hygiene products for women. It's an event, not a handout. And every year at the Malvern Retreat House, up to 125 women who are experiencing homelessness or in recovery stay for a two-day retreat. They find love and support in sharing prayer and their stories. What led Amy to social work? Well, she said God's plan was to work through her. Her most rewarding experience is interacting with people every day. Her responsibilities have grown over the years, and she reflects, it's been good for me. I've grown up in the organization and I've done so many different projects that now I can mentor and share my experiences with others who can continue these programs. Because whether I'm planning an outreach or even teaching, I'm ministering to people who are also teaching me, keeping me humble, compassionate, and more open. Amy Stoner lives the gospel message and truly sees the face of Jesus in every person she encounters. We salute you, Amy Stoner, your real champion. Today's edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross, can be enjoyed anytime, anywhere, at your convenience. Just download the Odyssey app and search Your Radio Doctor. It's health education on demand. Millions of Americans are losing their medical assistance or Medicaid coverage. If this affects you, Independence Blue Cross can help. You may be eligible to enroll in a health plan for as little as $0 a month. With Independence Blue Cross, you get the largest provider network in the area, including most Keystone First doctors and hospitals. We also offer free 24-7 telemedicine, coverage for hospital stays and prescriptions. See if you qualify for $0 health insurance and enroll today. Call Independence Blue Cross at 1-844-464-2583 or visit ibx.com slash stay covered. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, now Saturday afternoons at 5, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. This program is paid for by Your Radio Doctor, LLC. 
Welcome back to your radio doctor. We're learning so much from Dr. Andrew Alexis from Wild Cornell Dermatology. Andrew, we were talking about um, the differences uh, in presentation of conditions that are found in people of skin of all colors. Let's talk a little bit now about conditions that it can affect um, anyone, but that are more commonly found in people with richly pigmented skin. Yes, thank you, Marianne. Um, so there are indeed some skin and hair disorders that we see more commonly in patient populations with skin of color. Um, some examples that I can think of would be um, disorders of pigmentation, such as a very common one called melasma. Melasma is a condition that presents with brown patches, often on the cheeks, can be on the forehead, can be on the upper lip. Sometimes my patients will say it looks as if I have uh, 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 a mustache, unfortunately, um, uh, uh, and uh, oh. so w women can be obviously very concerned about the appearance of a brown patch on the upper lip. Um, it's thought to be related to both hormonal factors and genetic factors and the sun, again, UV uh, and visible light from the sun all contribute to this. And it's disproportionately seen in patients with richly pigmented skin, although it can affect uh, anyone of any background, but it's far more common in our patients of color. Another example would be keloids, um, which, which are defined as raised uh, scars that tend to expand beyond the area of injury. Um, and uh, we tend to see these more in our um, populations of color. And lastly, something that I see day in, day out is a form of hair loss that broadly we can call scarring alopecia. Uh, there are specific types of scarring alopecia, uh, but uh, broadly we see this very frequently in our patients of African descent, in particular one type called CCCA, triple CA. And we see that disproportionately in our women of African descent. And we mentioned earlier, is that cicatricial? Is that with the CCCA? It is, yes. And that's right. Is that uh, a genetic uh, risk factor that we're discussing? In addition to, we know that people of any color, but I would think people of color, uh, depending on hairstyles, if you pull your hair back too tightly, mm -hmm. yeah. So we, for many years, CCCA and its sort of relative traction alopecia that you alluded to has been uh, uh, associated with hair care practices that can injure the follicles, such as tight, uh, tight hairstyles. However, more recently, some genetic risk factors have been identified. So there are some specific genes mm -hmm. that might contribute to a, a higher risk of, the, of this uh, uh, scarring alopecia, CCCA. So it's a mixture of genetic predisposition and the frequency of micro injuries to the follicle that that set in motion inflammation chronically hmm. that, and ultimately leads to scarring of follicles. So when we say traction alopecia for our listeners, that means if you wear your hair pulled back in a tight ponytail or even tight braids, you might start to see your hairline recede. Is that a pretty common manifestation of it, Andrew? So traction alopecia could be considered a separate diagnosis, and it's exactly as you described. It does tend to be on the what um, most patients might call their edges, um, the frontal and temporal uh, scalp margin. Mm. Um, it's not the only condition that can do that. So one, it, it is something that one should um, 
come to a dermatologist to determine the diagnosis. Um, but yes, traction alopecia is a very common cause of thinning of hair in that particular area. Whereas CCCA, the other condition I mentioned, tends to start right at the crown and spread outward. Is that like the monks, that little circular alopecia? I don't know how they all manage to have the same <laughs> little circle of hair loss. I guess that's just a, a fable. <laughs> it might resemble that in terms of distribution. It really does affect the crown and then kind of spread outward. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So to revisit melasma, when a woman's hormones are elevated with pregnancy, you might see the linea, the linea alba, which stands for the, the lines are supposed to be lighter, down the center of the trunk can get brownish, yes? Yes. Mm -hmm. Is That's that considered right. melasma, even though it's temporary? No, that would be a separate um, sort of, that's a separate phenomenon associated with pregnancy, whereas melasma uh, by and large affects the face. There are exceptions where, wow. where, forearms and other sun exposed sites can be involved, but the face is really wow. the key place. Uh, the cheeks, the upper lip, the forehead. Wow. Has to be devastating for, for patients. But I guess now, as you say, with laser and even cosmetic, um, or just cosmetics themselves, there's, there's, there are more helpful ways to get around that. Let's talk a little bit more about keloids because I know they're, uh, am I right? They're three times more common in African-American patients and really more than twice as uh, likely to occur in Asian Americans. Am I right about that? You are based on what's been, what is in the literature, but I will say the caveat is we don't have great population studies to truly uh, measure the prevalence of, of keloids, but it's been observed for uh, and shown in, in, in some reports over the years that keloids tend to be more frequent in, in certain populations of color, mm -hmm. such as those of African descent and those of Asian descent. We certainly treat them frequently in, in, in my practice. And again, the joy of this show, what we try to do is distinguish those nuances so people aren't frightened when they read a, a summary article that says, well, you know, you can get keloids more likely if you have this or that part in your history. But um, what what causes them physiologically what happens uh, i was reading about stretching forces so if we know what causes it and we can avoid stretching an immature scar but let's talk about that a little bit do we know what causes keloids so you can consider the keloids you can consider keloids a sort of over exuberant or overabundant scar for uh, tissue formation or wound healing response if your skin is injured, of course, it's normal and physiologic to develop a scar to heal the wound. A keloid mm -hmm. sort of overshoots its goal. The scar tissue formation keeps on going and uh, can uh, then develop a raised scar and one that's expansive. And sometimes it can almost look like crab claws extending from the scar. And that's very distinctive of, of keloids. They tend to be itchy as well. Many of my patients with keloids, it's the itch, not just the appearance of the keloids. It can be uh, quite uh, debilitating to have uh, itching, sometimes depending on the area, if it involves the, the, the chest or, or the neck, it can even affect mobility. You can't even sort of stretch uh, the skin uh, because it's so taut and, and, and scarred. So it can really cause... Uh, sometimes an itch is worse than a pain. Indeed, right. itches. 
is extremely debilitating. Right. Yeah. And so you might, what are the common um, traumas that you see uh, that result in keloids? Maybe, uh, I guess, surgical incisions, or if somebody, as you say, has a trauma. How about um, tattoos? Do you see many keloids with tat after tattoos? We do see uh, uh, keloids arise in the context of tattoos, but less often than one would expect. Um, mm -hmm. A more common scenario as far as body art and keloids would be piercings. Piercings mm. are very think common about cause of, uh, mm -hmm. of keloids. Well, so we'll see keloids on the earlobes uh, or anywhere on the ear where that is pierced uh, and uh, body sites if they're pierced as well. So, uh, yeah. and burns, I guess patients that have burns can result, like anybody, that's psychiatrical uh, healing as well. Pregnancy, mm -hmm. hypertension, I was reading, I've never heard that connected with keloids before. You know, People I, with hypertension? It's not an observation that I've made, um, uh, but I will say one area that we haven't talked about with respect to keloids is inflammation. So we've, we've focused on trauma, but also inflammatory conditions can result in keloids. And the most common example of this would be acne. We see patients who've had moderate to oh. severe, uh, poorly controlled acne, especially on the chest or the back or the shoulders. And in those areas with severe acne, they can develop long-lasting keloid scars. And that's oh. really um, a heartbreaker and you know, very tough to That is a heartbreaker. Uh, especially if the person, if it's a young, a tween or a teenager, it's hard enough to have the acne, but then the resulting keloid has to be, as you say, heartbreaking. So where are we with, with treatment? Because I, I was reading a lot of different um, hopeful treatments. Yeah, so, you know, keloids is an area, keloids are an area where we desperately need more research and new therapies. Uh, but some of the, the advances um, late, that have come of late in terms of our techniques is we're able to, in, in, in most cases, flatten keloids, make them less itchy. We can improve the appearance of keloids using lasers. One of the uh, major advances is using a resurfacing laser called Fraxel, for example, or fractional lasers as we call them, and then uh, delivering uh, what used to have to be injected into the keloid. One can administer the medication on top of the keloid after resurfacing it with the laser. And this is particularly useful when you've got extensive keloids to avoid multiple injections of medicine, which obviously can be very painful to the patient. We can now resurface with the laser and then apply the medication on top as an alternative. Again, my mind, we're talking about A, I think B, C, D, F, and I ask a question about G or H, but the when you inject, does that increase? It's like we tell our patients that have belly surgery that once there's a disruption in there and we take out the appendix or gallbladder, whatever is being addressed, when, when we close the belly, scar tissue can form. And each time you have surgery, you make more scar tissue. Sometimes we go into, when you're doing these treatments, does that put the person at risk for another keloid or can it aggravate the keloid? I see. Okay, I understand your question. So is the trauma of the needle inserted into a keloid, is that enough to worsen or trigger another keloid? Thankfully Good. not. That the size of the needle used that we use is, a, is extremely small, very uh, small diameter, and not enough of an injury uh, to induce 
uh, mm-hmm. further keloid. Um, surgical removal of a keloid, though, oh. however, is certainly enough of a trauma in, in, to increase the risk of another uh, keloid or a recurrence of the keloid developing. So in general, if we are going to do surgery and we think very carefully about that, um, we couple it with other post surgical. Well, let's say a patient has a history of a keloid, even a small one, because they had their ears pierced. There's some, there's a marker that says, you know, move ahead with caution. If a person has a surgical incision and we know that the the patient or the family member has keloids, does the um, surgical, uh, like the glue, is that a better option? Or I guess there's still inflammation once they've had the incision made, right? Right. But other factors like tension, tension on the wound is a big factor that could increase the risk of keloids. And so there are some surgical techniques that could uh, reduce the amount of tension with which a wound is closed, and that in turn might lower the risk of keloids. But we usually, in Mm -hmm. such a higher risk patient, we might couple that with silicone uh, um, topicals or silicone scar sheets or injections post-operatively. And I'm sure, as you say, it's tailored to each person's history and their needs. Let's take a little break and we'll come back for a wrap-up with Dr. Andrew Alexis. Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie is presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. Good afternoon. I'm Bridget Bow, Executive Director for Recovery Centers of America at Devon and one of your addiction experts from RCA. Today I'm here to talk about starting fresh, developing new coping mechanisms in recovery. Quitting using drugs and alcohol is only one part of the addiction recovery. The other part involves developing healthy coping mechanisms for the intense emotions and difficulties you'll encounter. In the past, you may have turned to drugs and alcohol to deal with stress, trauma, and other life events. But in recovery, you'll need to develop new problem-solving skills that can help manage these issues without relying on addictive substances. Helping coping skills may have many benefits, including improved emotional regulation, increased resilience, improved relationships, better physical health, and relapse prevention. If you or one of your loved ones needs help with alcohol or drugs, reach out to Recovery Centers of America at 833-969-0268 or visit rcaradiodoctor.com. That's rcaradiodr.com. We answer the phone and admit patients 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I'm always striving to live my healthiest life, so I need a health plan that has my back. With Independence Blue Cross, I get access to the largest network of doctors and hospitals in the region and free virtual doctor visits 24-7. Plus, with premiums as low as $0 per month, I can stay on top of my health and keep my budget in check. Independence has given me coverage I can count on, and they'll do the same for you. Learn more about your coverage options at ibx.com. Welcome back, and a special thank you to Dr. Andrew Alexis from Wild Cornell Dermatology, a professor extraordinaire, and we've learned so much about uh, skin cancers and common conditions of hair, skin, and nails in everyone, but a special focus on people with uh, richly pigmented skin because these conditions behave differently, different outcomes, and really important information. I can't thank you enough. What's your take-home message, Andrew, and where can people read more about what we discussed? 
Well, thank you, Marianne. It's really been a pleasure. Um, I know we covered a lot of information today, and uh, I wanted to share with with uh, with everyone that's listening that there are some helpful resources online uh, for further reading, written in uh, everyday language geared towards patients in the community, um, including the Skin of Color Society. Um, so the Skin of Color Society website is skinofcolorsociety.org. And on that website, you'll find some tabs that are uh, labeled as patient education. And there's a growing collection of uh, helpful information about a whole range of skin, hair, and nail conditions, and even just general advice about um, healthy habits for your skin, hair, and nails. Um, other organizations that can be helpful with uh, uh, useful patient information is, of course, the American Academy of Dermatology or AAD. And so the website for that is aad.org. And there's a whole um, patient-friendly uh, education site uh, within that larger website. I'd like, if, if you don't mind, I can highlight uh, one aspect of our conversation about skin cancers, because I, I'd hate to leave folks with uh, fear. Uh, but I'd like to just give some advice that uh, is how important it is of anyone of any background to protect their skin from the sun, but also be aware of one of your own skin and what your quote unquote normal or baseline looks like. You want to be in a position to be able to detect something new or changing, especially if it changes in color, size, shape, and not to forget to look at areas that are a little less uh, obvious to look at such as the soles of the feet, between the toes, the, the nails. Um, and uh, while it might be perfectly normal to have some uh, types of pigmented spots in those areas, sometimes it's abnormal. And uh, one can only know if, if you look. And so seeking the care of a, of a board-certified dermatologist can help you differentiate between what's, what's uh, benign and normal and what requires a little bit more attention. So we want people to be comfortable in their skin, but not so comfortable that they ignore boo-boos that shouldn't be there. So if somebody has a lesion, and we always remind, if it's painful, if it's itchy, or it's bleeding, that's not supposed to happen. And see a board-certified dermatologist. And I, I am sure, too, the websites you mentioned, which are beautiful, and I'm going to repeat them for our listeners, skinofcolorsociety.org and the AAD, or American Academy of Dermatology, it would be really helpful for people to look at the pictures of lesions in people of skin of color. Because we said, look under the fingernails, don't think you bumped it and that's a black and blue mark or a, a, what we call an ecchymosis. It could be a melanoma. Soles of the feet, palms of the hand, look between your fingers. And if you see a dermatologist that's not going through your hair and looking at your scalp and looking in your underwear and looking every on every part of your body might want to look for a new dermatologist because it's a matter of being conscientious and really looking head to toe. Yes. Yes. A full body skin exam um, does include um, an exam from head to toe, but we're also mindful of, you know, some patients may just be less comfortable with examining some sensitive areas. And so we, we uh, many of us tend to, to uh, uh, defer to our patients, but explain a full body skin exam generally does include head to toe. 
It could save your life. And if you have a one first degree relative with melanoma or one or more second degree, so first degree is your parent, brother, sister, or child. Uh, second degree would be a little more removed, like a second, co- like a cousin or aunt, uncle. They should see the dermatologist more often, yes, instead of once a year. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Having a family, having a family history, having a relative that has melanoma, absolutely, that is a risk factor that would warrant a, even more vigilance and more frequent uh, skin exams. Yes. Skinofcolorsociety.org, American Academy of Dermatology.org. Thank you so much, Dr. Andrew Alexis. You are a superstar. Thank you so much, Marianne. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to your radio doctor each Saturday at 5 p.m. here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Listen again. All of our shows are posted on odyssey.com, A-U-D-A-C-Y. And please follow us on social media, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and now on threads. Thank you to our exclusive sponsor, Independence Blue Cross, and for support from Recovery Centers of America. Each week, we highlight the story of your real champion. Maybe you'll hear about a project that needs you as a volunteer or consider donating a few dollars. Let each story inspire you to do something good, especially when nobody's watching. This is your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, wishing you a happy, healthy, and safe week with the ones you love, and always here to remind you that your health is your wealth. Thanks for listening to your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. To contact Dr. Marianne and to listen to today's show as well as past shows, visit yourradiodoctor.com. This program is paid for by Your Radio Doctor, LLC. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of Your Radio Doctor and their guests and do not reflect the opinions of WPHT or Odyssey. Today's program has been pre-recorded. Millions of Americans are losing their medical assistance or Medicaid coverage. If this affects you, Independence Blue Cross can help. You may be eligible to enroll in a health plan for as little as $0 a month. With Independence Blue Cross, you get the largest provider network in the area, including most Keystone First Doctors and hospitals. We also offer free 24-7 telemedicine, coverage for hospital stays and prescriptions. See if you qualify for $0 health insurance and enroll today. Call Independence Blue Cross at 1-844-464-2583 or visit ibx.com slash stay covered.